Welcome back to a new episode of the Philosophy Exchange podcast. My name is Ina and I'm the host of today's episode. In today's episode, we will continue our conversation with Joe Rousseau's Lucas Beck and Marcel Jan on normative models. As a reminder, in the first part of our conversation, we discussed Lucas, Marcel and Joe's recent papers on normative models and the philosophical challenges these pose. If you have not listened to the first part, I highly recommend to do so before listening to today's episode. In today's episode, we will now continue our conversation on normative models, focusing on disagreements between Lucas, Marcel's and Joe's views, limits of normative models, and questions for further research. So without further ado, let's welcome back Joe, Lucas and Marcel. I'm also curious to hear about um, sort of the limits of normative modeling and maybe I mean, Joe, your work focuses mostly on, on philosophy, but um, as Lucas was mentioning, um, their paper also relates to some of the work economists do and social scientists. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to hear what you think about inquiries that are not apt for normative models at all. So are there, you know, are there any questions or any areas maybe of research where you think maybe the use of models in the sense that we've been discussing is just inapt or is it a principle a method that can be useful in any aspect of normative inquiry i hope that yeah the following answer kind of um answers your answers your question so um we do think that our second account of the normativity of normative models clearly shows the limits of normative modeling, like what a normative model can do if it is taken to provide normative guidance. So we think that normative models come in at a point where you already kind of have a certain set of justified normative verdicts. And for that, we think that theory building, traditional ethical methods like reasoning in reflective equilibrium and then you know coming up with a theory and then also from this theory you derive certain verdicts that you then perhaps take yourself to be justified and we think that this is still very very important because according to our second account we need this set we need this material so to speak of normative data to then have a normative model that can kind of push the justification further to to novel cases so to just give a historical example, uh, Savage, for example, he was a, or he was very convinced by the verdicts that um, models based on expected utility theory deliver. And he was quite puzzled what to do in a choice situation that's called a Lay's paradox, right? He didn't have any kind of really firm intuitions here, or he was not clear what to think about here, what the right verdict is. And he thought the one way to kind of reconstruct his reasoning process really goes along with how we think of you know normative models as providing normative guidance. Then he, he thought, well, I see that models based on expected utility theory give me the right results that match my considered intuitions, my considered judgments in a lot of cases. So I therefore really have also reason to, you know firmly believe in expected utility and its verdict for a lace paradox and thereby, you know, kind of get at a justified um, verdict for what you think in a lace paradox because it just kind of matches well the informational summary of its already justified verdicts that the normative model provides. Um, 
So this is, I think, a certain limit of normative um, modeling in and of itself. And I think you also asked about, well, are there any kind of subject, subject areas perhaps that one should or could not uh, in principle, you know, subject to this, to this methodology? So I think it's certainly very difficult to, you know, derive ethical principles out of it. So we would not think that normative models get you something like universal principles, perhaps, right? That's more, that's more where normative theory is perhaps important. And then, of course, you have traditional modeling exercises where the goal of the model is descriptive, right? Where it's about delivering explanations, predictions, perhaps understanding. Um, and yeah, I think here, uh, normative models would also not have a particular say, I guess. I mean, maybe again, just, yeah, one, one brief thing. Um, so I guess if the second account in the paper that we discuss ultimately turns out to be the best explanation we can offer when it comes to the guidance function of uh, normative models, then they would certainly be, I mean, a nice, you know, complement to the kind of normative toolbox, you know, to the toolbox for doing a normative uh, inquiry, um, but they would basically be not the only tool that you could uh, rely on here. I think broadly, we, we actually have very similar views on this. So I, I also think models always need output input from the outside. In, in science, you have to have some data, something that comes from outside the world of the models. So Marcel just mentioned having normative verdicts, which come from uh, cases or from theory. Uh, in my account, it has to do with idealizations that are justified normatively, but that justification has to come from somewhere else, not from within the model. So I agree entirely on that. Models are uh, a kind of tool for um, working with, uh, in, in science, you know, observations and building towards theory. I see them having a similar role in normative domains. Um, and I also agree that in many cases, the goal is going to be something more than models. Philosophers are interested in the truth. They want laws, principles, you know, these universally true generalizations. And I think models can support that, but the work would have to happen sort of after the modeling. It would have to go beyond the modeling. And uh, so I definitely don't think uh, anyone foresees a world in which everyone is only doing modeling in normative disciplines. I think it, it couldn't make sense. Okay, yes, thank you. That, that was really interesting. So one of the things that came out already a bit in our discussion that far was, or is that there is some sort of disagreement between Joe's views on normative modeling and pharmacology and maybe how Lucas and myself see normative models as providing normative guidance. Um, we've mentioned some differences already, but I wanted to give you guys the opportunity to talk a bit more about the particular kinds of concerns you might have about each other's account. And I suggest we start with Joe because um, he criticizes some of Lucas and Marcel's points in his paper. So Joe, if you want to talk a bit about that. I would be happy to. And uh, let me say it was um, criticism that benefited from having uh, more time to work on my paper and having read and discussed their paper with Marcel and Lucas. So it was uh, it was very helpful to have them to disagree with. Uh, well, the, the disagreement that I articulate in, in my paper, um, I think the main one has to do with 
this notion of extending a pattern of judgments. So the way that the core uh, move works in this second account is that uh, normative models, as I understand it, um, fit a pattern, which is a pattern within cases. Um, these are the cases that come from outside the model that we already have some normative verdicts on. The model fits those cases. It fits whatever the pattern is between them. And then it is able to extend normative justification to new cases. Um, and that extension maneuver is one thing that I guess I want to know more about. In the case of science, as I understand it, the, the way that inferences are justified is something like when a model successfully captures uh, a set of data, like for instance, it successfully reproduces the behavior of the population that it is modeling in the past, so it can match the historical record, then what's happening is that we we generate the belief that the model has captured the mechanism or something of that sort. There's a kind of inference to the best explanation that the way that this model is doing so well at capturing the historical behavior of the population, say, is that it has gotten right the mechanism. And so because we expect the mechanism, whatever it is, to continue into the future, we believe that it will do well at prediction. Um, so perhaps if it's a population model, we believe that it's captured the dynamics, maybe it's sort of interaction between predator and prey, reproduction dynamics, and so on. Those are kind of mechanisms. Um, they're causal mechanisms. We think that they've been captured by the model, so we use the model for some further purpose. Now, I guess that part of the account is, to my mind, missing from... Um, Lucas and Marcel's account of how normative models work. So I want to know what is it that's justifying the move from the pattern of, uh, well, the pattern within the cases for which we have normative verdicts and for which we have justification outside of the model to the new cases. Yeah, so perhaps we could start with that one. So... I think there are roughly three points that we have here, I think. But the first one is that potentially um, our view of the um, extending account here is uh, not too different uh, from the view that models allow us to capture certain uh, causal uh, patterns. Uh, that's, for example, I mean, uh, the idea that has been advocated by uh, Potoshnik. Um, so that's uh, the first point. And I think the second point is that in making this claim, uh, you could, of course, say that you kind of, yeah, that we kind of presuppose that um, the normative realm, so to speak, is has sufficient structure, right? So that we basically have a pattern that is kind of like uh, extendable, right? So you have to, you you basically need this idea of this, uh, yeah, normative structure being um, being out there. So um, that's basically one way to justify it. Uh, and I mean, of course, I think I agree, we have to probably say uh, more on this uh, than we have currently done in the paper, but it's, I guess, not a, you know, too crazy a presupposition uh, to make here. And then I think this, the third point is that um, you could also try to purely, you know, justify it in, 
coherentist terms, basically. So the idea is, look, I mean, that there's this pattern in your already justified verdicts, and now there's a novel verdict that kind of fits this pattern, just gives you some form of justification in virtue of kind of like the, the coherence this basically implies for, for your attitudes. Uh, this is basically to say that even if you are skeptical of basically the, the second point that the normative realm is sufficiently structured, uh, we could still, I think, appeal to this coherent-based uh, considerations to justify this move. Yeah, I, I actually find that um, to be quite convincing. I think that we, neither of us, is going to convince uh, moral particularists that these models are um, going to successfully do the work that we think they are. Uh, if we think of moral particularists as just those people who think that there is not going to be this kind of con consistent and stable structure, which can be applied across a variety of cases or in different circumstances. But I think that's probably fine. I mean, perhaps that's just because one of the things that uh, is at stake in the disagreement between particularists and others is whether any methods that are more general can work and models are going to be a class of more general method that can work. Um, so I think that's a good answer. I, I would love to um, develop you know, an account of what that looks like or what kind of structure is required for models. And uh, I think that would be a really interesting line to, to kind of hear more about in future. I mean, one, one thing perhaps to add, I mean, to explain, you know, particularism and what is what this is all about. So there's this disagreement, especially in meta ethics between universalists and particularists and universalists think that we can give these universal um, normative principles and particularists think that this is doomed to fail and that we can just make particular verdicts for, you know, certain specific cases. Um, and we cannot kind of uh, invoke over and above these specific particular uh, verdicts, more general principles that capture them and have this kind of, yeah, more universalist uh, ambitions. And I'm actually not sure whether or not our second account of the normative source of normative models is or is not compatible with particularism, because a particularist could still think that there's a certain similarity between particular cases, right? And it could be that by capturing certain normative verdicts, we thereby capture a pattern that simply represents or reflects the similarity between the cases. And what the normative model could then do is to say, look, there is a case that is quite similar to the old ones. And because it's similar to, to them, you therefore have reason to also accept a certain normative verdict for that new case. And this could be compatible with the idea that there are no universal principles because it could still be that there are just no universal principles um, and our account would just kind of presuppose something in between right it would it would require that there's a certain structure of the normative realm which does not need to entail that you have universal principles um, for describing it so i think maybe in in, in in this regard, what's also interesting is uh, Joe's point that um, our account also has trouble delineating the domain of uh, the extending function of normative models. So in his paper, I mean, Joe relies on two things, so idealizations and uh, purpose uh, to um, delineate uh, the domain um, of normative models. And so our second account, because it kind of doesn't want to put idealizations uh, uh, center stage, uh, basically can't appeal to idealization. So I think we still think that we can appeal to, to the purpose of the modeler, 
but yeah, we can't appeal to, to idealizations uh, here. Uh, but I think one thing that Marcel has now pointed at is uh, one thing the extending account can also do is work with this idea of having uh, similar verdicts. Of course, I think then it becomes you know an important step to really make this work to to figure out what the relevant notion of of, of similarity is here that this uh, would would rely on. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm happy with that answer. Actually, I think um, when I said what I did about particularism, I guess I it depends a little bit whether you take particularism to just mean the negation of universalism, or whether you take it to mean a kind of more extreme position according to which there's not much systematization at all. I like the answer that Marcel gave. I think that models are a good tool for partial systematization, and and we see that in science too. That often in sciences where one is operating without theory, where there are no kind of higher level laws and the modeling is happening kind of from the ground up, like in some areas of biology, perhaps some areas of economics, then there's an attempt to systematize, but it can be relatively local, a small set of cases, a few kinds of phenomena and so on. And, and I think models are very helpful in that, and models are very helpful in that way. And um, that can be a good uh, bridge so it, in some of my um, extensions to this work where I've been thinking about how models might work in moral philosophy, I've been thinking precisely about this question of whether uh, models can provide a sort of partial systematization similar in a role to the way that some people talk about mid-level principles in ethics, uh, where the goal is to achieve some kind of systematicity uh, that doesn't rise to the full kind of universalism that moral theory aspires to. So it's not attempting to provide these rules or principles which apply in all cases or which completely unify a domain. Um, it uh, instead attempts rather to just capture what's happening in one particular area. So that could be useful methodologically. Perhaps if one is developing a theory, it's helpful to work from the ground up in this way. But it could also be helpful because if, if uh, your interlocutors have these meta-ethical commitments, according to which there just are no universal theories, you might nevertheless agree that there can be some local systematization and it can be a very helpful tool for making progress in these local subdomains. Yeah, those are really a couple of interesting points. You've been, I mean, this has been turning towards um, some of the, your other work concerning the topic of normative modeling. And yeah, I've been meaning to also ask you to say a bit more about what else you would like to work on, what you see as future topics that are relevant um, in this area. Um, maybe you have something already planned. It sounded a bit like that in Lucas <laughs> and Marcel's case, um, and to some extent in Joseph as well. You can talk a bit about that. I mean. Yeah, you already uh, hinted at it um, in a, so I think there are basically uh, two projects, I think, that uh, kind of come out of um, uh, uh, this paper that we are now trying to work on. Um, so the first project is, I think we've already talked about it, basically a continuation of our conversation uh, with uh, um, Joe and basically um, an elaboration or an extension uh, of uh, the extending account that we have presented in our paper. And then um, the second uh, project is a little bit broader. So I think what, what we realized, you know, when doing this collaboration is that it yeah, might be quite fruitful to continue doing work at the intersection of philosophy of social science and um, meta-ethics. And we think the main reason, therefore, is that there are now 
is an you know, uh, extensive discussion of normative concepts and, and value invadedness, especially uh, surrounding the, the social sciences in uh, philosophy um, of science. But we feel that kind of like the meta-ethical or normative toolbox, right, that uh, philosophers of science draw on uh, to address um, these question, questions um, is rather limited. So there's a lot of talk about you know, values and uh, thick concepts, but in general, we think that there are, um, are more resources also in the meta-ethical uh, literature that uh, we could uh, draw on here to, to make this, um, yeah, to enrich basically this debate and to provide us uh, with, with further tools uh, for, anal for analyzing um, you know, value-ladenness in social science. I could say a little bit more about what I'm working on. So I mentioned uh, one thing, which is in fact a, a full paper at the moment about more modeling as a method in moral philosophy. And what I'm trying to do there is first just to outline what it would mean to create and use a model in ethics, what the purpose of that might be. Um, I identify a few cases that I think could be fruitfully understood as ethical models. Part of the purpose in that work is to provide a new way of understanding um, the theory anti-theory debate in ethics, which is um, this debate about whether the project of ethical theory, that is the project of trying to create these systematic uh, accounts, which typically revolve around things like fairly universal principles and laws, whether that whole project is fruitful. And I think it's fair to say that a great many people who work in first order normative ethics today work within the framework of some kind of theory. Popular theories are things like utilitarianism or uh, varieties of uh, deontology. But there's also a very strong criticism against that kind of approach to ethics from a group of people who go under the label of anti-theorists, which really they don't tend to have very much in common except that they don't like theory. It can cover a very wide variety of different approaches to doing ethics. And so I'm using that debate as a um, jumping off point to say uh, the options are not just theory and its full universal kind of imperial aspiration and nothing at all in the way that some uh, extreme varieties maybe of moral particularism might sound like. Uh, there is this middle ground of partial systematization. I think modeling, again, this analogy with science can be a very helpful way of understanding how that works. Of course, much work already happens in this middle ground. For instance, this principle, these mid-level principles in fields like bioethics. So that project is really about, uh, again, trying to inject this analogy with science and this kind of methodological analogy with scientific models into a debate as a way to help understand what's happening in ethics. Um, and then an, an extension of that with a collaborator with uh, Krista Beekvist, I'm working on a kind of manifesto, trying to encourage people to do modeling of this sort in ethics. So trying to outline more kind of benefits, areas of ethics, which uh, could benefit from doing this kind of work. And there the idea is really, it's more of a sales pitch. Uh, here are some benefits. Uh, you should think of yourselves as a modeler. You should do modeling. It provides these ways for people to talk to each other across uh, divides like the theory, anti-theory divide, or just for people who are committed to different theories 
to nevertheless talk to one another. Um, because models can operate in a sort of theory independent way to capture some structure about a set of cases uh, freed from these much higher level theoretical commitments. Uh, so that's very much work in progress, but that's where I'm heading. Yeah, thank you all for sharing that. That sounds like um, a lot of interesting work that is going to happen. And I am really looking forward to hearing more about that and to reading more about this topic in the future. Yeah, so um, with that, uh, we have come to the end of our podcast. And I would like to, again, thank you for coming and discussing this very interesting topic with us today. So thank you, Joe, Lucas, and Marcel. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. Thank you.